You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so so that through the church of the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through him, through faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word to us, this word that you, through your servant Paul, have given to us. And so now we pray that you would indeed have your own way in us uh, individually, as people accountable to you but certainly, Lord, as a church, as your people gathered under your words. We pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, This week is an elementary week, so if you have already checked in back there in the kids' area and you would like to go with Miss Karen and Mr. and Mrs. Mayberry and have a great time together singing and thinking about God's word together, head on out. Man, what a blessing. Well, it is good to be standing right here again with you, getting uh, to prepare a sermon again this week, now getting to stand here and proclaim the excellencies of Christ from his word today. I'm so thankful for Kyle and for Jordan and for Aaron uh, to have brothers in our church who so capably and pastorally can rightly divide the word of truth, sending us to Christ over the past three weeks. So thank you, brothers, for giving us Uh, the word. I had a really fruitful and productive trip uh, to the UK earlier this month. Uh, Many, if not most of you already know, but uh, I'm studying the theology and congregational life of one specific particular Baptist church uh, in East London who kept their minute book of every single member meeting they had from 1677 to 1711. Uh, And Uh, During those years, the first 12 years of that book, uh, it was still illegal to be a Baptist. Their pastor was imprisoned uh, for most of 1684. Uh, But this church, that church that I'm studying from the 1600s still exists today. It's moved around London for the past 350 years, and it's now made up of almost entirely African immigrants. Uh, So I was so happy to get to preach for them now for a second time uh, two weeks ago. 
the pastor there, Pastor Wali, is Nigerian, and they are just as committed today to the gospel as they have ever been, committed to the trustworthiness of the scriptures and then even other convictions that make them, uh, like us, distinctively Baptist. Uh, things like individual and personal accountability before God, the need for repentance and conversion, believers' baptism, church membership, the authority and the autonomy of the local church, all of these things. Uh, it, is, it is so good to be reminded that these, all those things that I just said aren't like new American innovations and that Baptist theology and conviction goes far beyond what we tend to think of in its like limited American cultural settings. So I wish that you all could know and be deep friends with the saints of Grace Church Walthamstow. Uh, even though you'll ni- likely never meet them in this life, we are, uh, as believers in Christ, united to them by the blood of Christ. And I can't wait for you to get to spend eternity getting to know them better. But this uniting, uniting by the blood of Christ, is what we've been saying for the past four weeks is what the book of Ephesians is all about. I said four weeks ago that if I could sum up Ephesians in one sentence, it would be this, that God is bringing all things together into unity with Christ. God is bringing all things together into unity with Christ. And when I said all things, I meant all things. When I say no troll left behind, I mean no troll left behind. That was a little uh, elementary humor, and they've all left uh, from the movie Trolls. But in Ephesians, God is uniting all things together into unity with Christ. God is uniting families and churches together into unity with Christ. God is uniting people of different races, of different ethnicities and geographies together into unity with Christ. God is uniting realms of death together into unity with a realm of light into unity with Christ. God is uniting the cosmos, uniting heaven and earth into unity with Christ. Now there were hints There were breadcrumbs throughout the Old Testament that all of this was the plan of God. It was a a hidden mystery until the death and resurrection of ascension of Jesus and then by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all kinds of people. But like we briefly thought about four weeks ago, when Paul and other biblical authors use the word mystery, it's not to mean something that is like impossible to figure out. Like we might say, I don't know. It's just a mystery. Who can know? Or the way that some guys might say, women have always and will forever will be a mystery to me. Uh, Well, I've got news for you. They aren't. They are human beings just like you, so try harder. But uh, anyway, this is not what Paul means, that there is something that we will never understand. Just like how a mystery novel waits to unveil what is true and what has happened after it has built conflict, the point of a mystery is not to perpetually hide, but to build and to reveal. That's why true crime podcasts that don't come to any findings, any conclusions, are so unsatisfying. Like you get to the end and the host is like, I guess we'll never know. Uh, We'll just have to keep searching for answers. No, I just committed 20 hours to your podcast and that is very unsatisfying. Well, Paul is, to say the least, very satisfied with the unveiling of a mystery that was previously unknown or unseen. And in our text today, he is going to explain to the Ephesians about what the revealing of this mystery, what was previously hidden, what the revealing has now done, both to him and through him. And that's, in fact, how we're going to organize our thoughts through this passage in two parts. 
The revealing of the mystery to Paul and the revealing of the mystery through Paul. So, first of all, the revealing of the mystery to Paul, Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and hang on there, as good students, not just of the Bible, but of, as good students of like any literature, he says, for this reason. Well, for this reason, what? This isn't quite a therefore, but as the old saying goes, therefore is there for a reason. It is to point us back, to make us realize that this is an ongoing argument that Paul is saying. So for this reason, for what reason? Well, everything that he's been writing, chapters one and chapter two, especially chapter two, that God has now torn down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. That in writing specifically and directly to the Gentiles, those people who were not ethnic descendants of Abraham, Paul told them this in Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Remember that you were at the same time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's what he told the Gentiles. So that because of all that happening, now God has made now one new man in the place of two, all things into unity with Christ. So for this reason, verse one, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, for all of that, now he goes on. Now, many scholars think that Paul was about to go into the prayer that he's actually going to pray for the Gentiles in verse 14. If you look at verse 14 in your Bibles, he says, for this reason, same thing, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. But he was about to start praying for them in chapter 3, verse 1. But then when he said this word Gentiles, uh, he, he got sidetracked. Uh, he eventually will swing back around, but just by writing that word, uh, he wants to chase down this rabbit trail. His mind starts to think, oh yeah, there's still more that I want to say about you Gentiles. This happens to me all the time in preaching. Like I'll say some word or some idea, and then I just want to follow this rabbit trail for a minute, and then I'll come back and say, anyway, uh, where was I? That's exactly, I think, what Paul does here. Paul says the word Gentile again, and then Ephesians 3, verses 2 through 13, is one big Holy Spirit-inspired rabbit trail that Paul chases for a couple of minutes. And I think we kind of intuitively know this to be some sort of an aside, some sort of a parenthetical thought of Paul's. Like, it's been my temptation in reading through Ephesians several times over the past few weeks and months to kind of skim over or rush through these verses. Has this been true of you, if you've been reading this? Chapter 2 is so much deep and rich theology. Chapter 4 is overflowing with the theology of the church. And then the, like, the eminently practical one-liners that he gives us in chapter 4 and chapter 5. So we get to this part, and we're like, yeah, 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 I get it. The mystery of Christ, Gentiles, fellow heirs. He's, like, all of these phrases and words are things he's already said. So we can kind of like press down on the accelerator and just fly through these things but don't. First of all, two reasons why. Don't do that. First, one, God does not waste words. Our God does not waste words. So if Paul is repeating himself here, perhaps it's because God thought we needed repetition to further submit some of these truths and realities. But two, Paul is going to give some really important like autobiographical notes about himself that both give depth to his experience in theology as well as I think we'll see will give us some like personal punch 
for some actual practical application in our lives. So, verse 1, for this reason, the reason that For the reason that God is uniting Jew and Gentile into one new person in Christ, for that reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and hold on, Gentiles, I'm just like, verse 2, assuming that you've actually heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. He says the words Gentiles, and he's like, wait a minute. Now, remember, a couple of us have mentioned that this letter was probably intended to be like a circular letter, not written to a specific church, but to be passed around around the entire region of Western Turkey, made up of a bunch of people who have never even met Paul. So he's saying, I'm actually just assuming here that you have heard about how God gave me grace, how God revealed what was formerly concealed, what was a mystery to me. And if you're new to the Bible, What he's referring to here is Acts chapters 8 and 9. In Acts chapter 8, Paul, then known as Saul, is a Jewish teacher of the law. He's a Pharisee. And he is approving of, if not overseeing, the murder of Stephen and other people who had started preaching that Jesus of Nazareth, this shamefully executed carpenter from the hillbilly backwoods of Nazareth, was actually the the anointed son of David the King of Israel, the Messiah, the Christ. And when we went through Acts a couple of years ago, we, said, we thought of Saul very much like a Darth Vader figure. He's like systematically rooting out and hunting down and exterminating the rebels. He has a reputation of terror. Jumping ahead to the next few chapters of Acts, when Christians are supposed to greet and welcome Saul, they essentially respond with, are you kidding? That's Darth Vader. That's a little tricky to translate in the Greek, I know, but, but God, but God, Darth Vader, but God, in chapter 9, the risen Lord Jesus appears to Saul. He confronts Saul on the road to Damascus and reveals himself to be the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. Now, did Jesus become something new That day on the road to Damascus? No, the truth of who Jesus actually is was just revealed to Paul. Now, Paul could see, or to use the language from Ephesians 1.19, the eyes of his heart were enlightened. He could see. It's like Paul had been preparing his entire life to go to a Broadway play, and he thought this play was just all about Abraham and Moses and David, and then the curtain came up, and who was there? but Jesus of Nazareth. That's not the play I came to see, but that's the play that he needed. Abraham and Moses and David were all actually just supporting characters in this play, but their parts, though supportive and actually there, were very minimal to the main character of Jesus. And so blinded by the glory of Christ, but now ironically, having seen for the very first time, Paul's life was forever changed. He says in verse 2 of Ephesians 3 that God's grace was given to me for you. In verse 8, he says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. His life is now about preaching to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. The trajectory of his life has fundamentally changed. And it's this preaching to the Gentiles that has actually gotten him in so much trouble. He says, 
in verse 1 that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. This, he's writing this likely when he's imprisoned in Rome, and if he had not been uh, preaching all of this inclusion of the Gentiles stuff to all of these Jewish synagogues all over the Mediterranean world, then none of this would have happened. He would have not been imprisoned. But he doesn't call himself a prisoner of the Jews. I, Paul, a prisoner of the Jews, or I, Paul, a prisoner of the Romans. He calls himself a prisoner of Christ. Wherever he finds himself, he belongs to Jesus, and he's not complaining about it. Wherever he is, wherever Paul is, Jesus is. So wherever Jesus is, that's the place where he wants to be. So having reminded the Gentiles, many who have never met him, about how Jesus came to him and showed him grace, he then says in verses 4 through 6, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 5 is exactly what Kyle said last week, that through the Old Testament, centuries and generations went by without, people, without the people of God really understanding what was going on. Sure, there were hints. There were shadowy figures. But this is exactly what we professed this evening from the Second London Confession, that none of this really made sense until the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Did the people of God dimly understand that they were separated from God because of their sinful disobedience, but God would someday fully and finally crush the head of the serpent and of sin itself? Yes, all that was there from Genesis 3. The people of God knew that, dimly understood it. Did the people of God dimly understand that God would bless the nations through the seed of Abraham and that the way to be considered truly righteous was by faith? Yes, that's clear from Genesis 12 and 15. Did the people of God understand that the way to have access to God was through a priestly system of blood sacrifice? Yes. Exodus, Leviticus. Did the people of God understand that God promised a son of David would forever reign and rule over his people? Yes. It's clear from 2 Samuel 7. Did the people of God understand that God would actually even pour out his spirit on his people so that not just individual kings or prophets from time to time would be able to walk intimately with God, but that all of his people, all of his people would know him? Yes, all that's clear from Ezekiel 36, which Kyle read from, for our assurance of pardon this evening, and from Jeremiah 31, and from Joel 2. But was all of that, that the Old Testament, Old Covenant people of God, is all of that the same thing that we experience and understand now, today? Was Jesus just a continuation of the same covenant that God instituted, grace through faith with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17? Is the Old Testament story just continued on today under just this one big umbrella covenant that Jesus is the focal point of? No. Into verse 4, the mystery of Christ, verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Something new has happened. While there were dim shadows of Jesus in the old covenant of Abraham and Moses and David, they were but just shadows. They looked right, like the real thing, 
but they were almost impossible to make out clearly because the substance had not yet come. Like if I asked you to tell me what's going on with the shadows here on the stage, you could see some things, but perhaps even when the lighting behind it isn't actually all that clear even, and the, the, the shadows can get really murky and clear, unclear to see and to make out, the substance comes and you can see clearly. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. He says so in Luke 24, but something new happens with Jesus. There is an actual newness of the new covenant that Jesus brings, a shift where you do not belong to the covenant people of God based on your ethnic first birth, but by your spiritual second birth, that experiencing the covenantal blessings of God is no longer based on your ability to obey and keep the law, but on Jesus's ability to keep the law. That the kingdom of God's people is no longer uh, this like New Jersey strip size or size strip of uh, land on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, but that the kingdom of Christ is the entire world and cosmos, that all of God's people in receiving his spirit can have their sins, past, present, and future, forever cleansed by the blood of an eternal sacrifice. Not just the sins of this week or this year, put off by the blood of an earthly sacrifice. That, the peop- that people from all over the world, of any and every race and tribe and nation or language, regardless of their background, regardless of their past knowledge of God or their obedience to him, can now be known by God, can be counted and adopted as sons and daughters of God. Or as Paul says in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, now there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Or Ephesians 6, 6, this mystery, what was previously hidden but now made clear, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This revealing, this revelation was new, not just to Paul, though he certainly learned of it in a dramatic way on the road to Damascus, but it was actually new. All of the promises of God, the entire Old Testament story, find their yes and their amen in Jesus. He is the first and the last. He is the main character of all main characters. He is the gravitational center of the universe around which all time and space and history revolves, around which the story of God's action in the Bible and around which our church and our individual small lives revolve. Whether we know this to be true or even acknowledge this to be true, it is true. The play on the stage is happening. Jesus is on the stage. The curtain has been raised and all has been revealed. Whether or not you enter the auditorium to see, whether or not you even understand the play that is happening on the stage, it is happening. And so Paul, in Ephesians 1.18, does pray that the people who are out there in the auditorium and who are observing what is happening on the stage, would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that there would be sufficient light, that they would have clarity and understanding for who Jesus is and what he has done. But that actually, Paul's entire life now is about making sure that as many people in the world are invited into this auditorium to observe this stage, to observe this main character of all main characters of Jesus, and to understand the drama unfolding before them. The mystery has been revealed, and now it's just this really poorly kept open secret. The mystery is actually not a mystery anymore. It is an open secret. 
that the gospel of Jesus is this open secret which our stories of like the fountain of youth and the holy grail, all of our stories of searches for eternal happiness all long for? Here's the answer. This main character on the stage is saying, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or as Paul would elsewhere say, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the mystery, the now open secret that was revealed to Paul and to us, that God is bringing all things together into unity with Christ. So if this is what God has revealed to Paul, Now let's consider the second half here in verses 7 through 11, the revealing of the mystery through Paul. Paul says in verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. God's grace. Grace, the riches of his love to undeserving sinners. And Paul says that this gift of grace was actually the working of his power. Like it's not just a a a Christmas present just given to you, but it is a work of his power. Like, how else could God have gotten Paul to where he is today? In prison, suffering joyfully for Christ, preaching and proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth as the fulfillment of all of God's promises, when just like a decade or so prior, he was Darth Vader killing anyone who was saying the same things. When he was dead set on murdering and eliminating anyone who would preach or even believe such things. This is what Paul is saying in verse 8. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. He is, he's making up a word here. He's making up a Greek word when he's basically saying, I am the least of the leastest. He is, he's essentially saying, I am the leastestest. I am the leastestest, the person who doesn't deserve any of this grace. He's not necessarily saying that he is presently the most sinful person in the world, the most sinful person that he's ever heard of or something, but as the former murdering enemy of Christ, the person that Jesus has shown his grace to, that doesn't make any sense. He is the leastestest that Jesus has now intervened and revealed himself to, and revealed himself to in power. So here's the thing. While you may not have formerly murdered Christians, made it your life goal to systematically root out and to eliminate Christianity. Paul has already said in chapter 2 that while you, if you are now a Christian, may not have been in that state of like physical and violent opposition to God, all people, you included, were actually that opposed to Christ before he came to you and revealed his glory to you and brought you to life by his power. He says in chapter 2 that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, lifeless and opposed to God. I think I've shared a time or two that many might try to explain what God does as, uh, in the gospel as, as like moving about in a lifeboat. And there's like lots of drowning people out there, and so God tosses out one of those life rings on a rope, 
moving person by person, and he freely offers this gift of life and salvation, and now it's just up for these drowning people to make the best and right decision that they can make for their life by accepting this free gift of salvation. I've heard, heard others say that the clearer picture of salvation in the Bible is that God does the work. He, he drives the boat over to flailing and drowning people, and he reaches down, and he grabs them by the shoulders, and he pulls people right into the boat of life. But I think the clearest imagery of salvation in the Bible, certainly of Ephesians 2, of being dead and our sins and our trespasses, but God raising us to life and seating us in the heavenly places with Christ is really that of a boat going across the surface of the waters and on the bottom of the ocean is just scores and scores and scores of the spiritually dead. Dead on the bottom of the sea. They have rejected him, opposed him, and are happy to remain in death at the bottom of the sea. But God. He speaks a word of life and brings the dead to life. Up from the watery grave, out of judgment and condemnation. And if you are in Christ, such was what he has done with you and with you and with you, and with you, and with me, and with all of us, a word of power. And if you have not been united to Christ by faith, it is the word of life that speaks to you today. Hear the word of Christ from Ephesians 5 that Paul will later say, two chapters later, when he says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is Jesus speaking to you today, a word of life. Come to him out of the death that lives a life only for yourself, a life only in obedience to yourself. Place yourself squarely in the kingdom of Christ and by his suffering and death, have your sins forgiven and be made his. He is eager to do it. It's been said that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then nothing else matters. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, then nothing else matters. If this is your life, if he has brought you to life by the word of his power, then this is your life. Do not, Hebrews 2, 3, neglect so great a salvation. This is what he has done in your life, in our lives together. Press in more deeply to know him and to make him known. And it's in that sense that while this mystery has been made known, it is an open, open secret that Paul wants to, verse 9, bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. It's a plan. It's an open secret now made clear to us. And yet... He still says, just before that, that he lives to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What God has done for us in the gospel is a plan. It's made known. It's an open secret, now revealed, a mystery made clear to us. And yet, the riches of Christ are actually unsearchable. The glories and riches of Jesus are actually never-ending. So many people, including me, have said some version of that, that, that the joy hunts that we go on, 
the searches for meaning that we daily or hourly go on, looking for satisfaction in all kinds of things that actually never keep their promises, all of those impulses for joy and for meaning and for satisfaction are actually satisfied in Jesus. Right? We already said that the Holy Grail and Fountain of Youth stories that we all long for actually are longing for the story of Christ. And that's true. But it's better than that. The search and the hunt for the deep glory of Jesus actually never finds its, we might say, satisfying end. Because Jesus never fully, completely satisfies wait for me on this, because he gets deeper and better. There are always deeper treasures deeper down in the mine, in the glory of Christ. There is never this like Christmas Eve and Christmas morning time of expectation and joy only to be followed by the inevitable Christmas afternoon, right? Isn't Christmas afternoon like one of the worst days of the year? Like after it's over, you're like, well... That wasn't much of a payoff. No, there is always more. Always more in Christ. Always more to know and to learn doctrinally and theologically about Jesus. Always more to love and to worship experientially about Jesus. And that's why eternity with him should not be a scary or a daunting thing. It's because we have eternity to never be satisfied in the best way possible because there is always more. We often sing, your glories and endless, your beauty and, your beauties and glories are endless. Oh Jesus, I must know you more, both now and forever. The unsearchable riches of Christ, his love and his grace made known for you and for me. And yet, here's the thing, this grace that he has given to you, this grace isn't just intended to be merely like passively received, not merely about receiving as you like pop open the fully reclined recliner and just receive, 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 maybe put some sunglasses on and just soak it in. That's not what the grace of God is for. It is for your joy. It is for your comfort and for your rest. But remember, the gospel is a gospel of power Maybe you know from Romans 1 where Paul calls the gospel the power of God for salvation, that this word power, the same word that he uses here in verse 7, is the word that we get our English word dynamite from. So Paul in verse 7 says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which which was given me by the working of his dynamite, by the working of his explosive, life-changing, life-giving power. The gospel of God's grace to undeserving sinners is not a water balloon, vulnerable to be protected, or even something valuable but vulnerable. The gospel of Jesus isn't some like Fabergé egg. The gospel is power waiting to be unleashed in and through his people. Paul calls his ministry in verse 1 a stewardship of God's grace. Paul considers himself to be a manager of God's grace. He manages and stewards God's grace with him wherever he goes. In verse 7, he is a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace. He serves or he cares for the advancement of the gospel. He administers, he applies God's grace. 
This is a gospel of power, not a gospel of fragility. While Paul wouldn't have had Chronicles of Narnia categories, uh, I think he would have just really loved the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I think he would have loved C.S. Lewis's picture of Susan and Lucy riding on the back of Aslan the lion. Through forests, over the rivers, past the valleys, with wind in their hair and joy in their hearts, power coursing through them, just along for the ride. The ride on the back of the lion who is breathing life on all of the lifeless statues. Ministers, stewards, managers. So it was with Paul, especially so as a delegated apostle, but so it is for us as well. Passive, receiving, but not lazy. Bringing to light the open secret of God in Christ so that, verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The manifold, the the many-faced wisdom of God might be made clear to rulers and authority. Now, these rulers and authorities aren't necessarily like the religious and political authorities of the day, though Paul would eventually be able to preach the power of the gospel to them as well. But the Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 spiritual powers and authorities that hold this world in bondage and in deception. Two years ago, over two years ago, when we were meeting on Zoom in May of 2020, when we worked through Colossians, in Colossians 2.15, Paul says something similar to what he just said here. In Colossians 2.15, Paul says, He, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This word disarmed, disarmed the rulers and authorities, is more literally stripped. He stripped, he disrobed, he defanged the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now, the supreme irony of the cross is that Jesus did all of this while he himself was stripped and disrobed. And as he was lifted up in open shame, by all, by all observation in the moment, while he died on the cross to be a moment and a place of utter defeat, the end of his life, the end of his ministry, the end of his supposed kingdom, not the beginning, not a triumph. But this is actually the time and place, the death and then his coming resurrection that turns the universe on, his, on its head. And like a Roman general, he then leads his defeated enemies, the powers and authorities. He leads his defeated enemies in bondage, locked up like a Roman general in a parade triumph. He has conquered over them. And so these evil powers, the rulers and authorities, the elemental spirits, as Paul calls them in Colossians, they come with deceptive ideas that play toward our already disordered desires, or what Paul calls the flesh. The same desires that are near universal through time and culture of money and sex and power. Ideas that push these already disordered desires even further in disorder when we don't even realize it's happening. But then like this great judo master on the cross, Jesus uses the momentum of his opponents the desire for ruling and autonomous power and flips them into open shame. The mystery of the gospel. Power through weakness. Self-fulfillment through self-denial. 
life through death. So that, back to Ephesians 3, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities. It was God's eternal plan to use the church, to use us, to become the prongs of a wedding ring. That the church might hold and display the eternal wisdom, the saving power, the mighty love of God that unites individual people to him in rebirth and then unites those individual people of different races and languages and ethnicities and education levels and socioeconomic backgrounds or whatever earthly difference these people might find themselves to have, they are now joined together in spiritual unity to one another in him, the manifold wisdom of God that God is bringing all things together into unity with Christ. In Christ, so that verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We are united to him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it's here that Paul begins to wrap up this thought, this rabbit trail with, uh, now where was I again? He finishes up this rabbit trail before he actually starts praying in verse 14 with verse 13, where he says, guys, Ephesians, if all of this is true, the open secret of God in Christ the rebirth of his people into a new kingdom and a new covenant of Christ in which his people are brought into the very inner courts of heaven, united to one another and united in Christ. If all of that is true, verse 13, hey, I just ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. A short and momentary imprisonment this is, which may even end in my death is actually not that big of a deal. Hard, yes. Difficult, yes. Tears and physical pain, yes and yes, you bet. Every day is difficult, but despair, no. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the best sentence in the world, it is. And for Paul, in his suffering, if all of this is true, if the formerly hidden mystery of God is now the best open secret, that we can be made united to him and united to one another, if Jesus has actually been raised from the dead, then nothing else matters. Imprisonment, suffering, pain, difficulty, anxiety, doubt, suffering, all of it real, all of it difficulty, but if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then nothing else matters. We are his, and he has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. Everything that I've said tonight, most of it, we've already thought through over the past two chapters. This really was a rabbit, a rabbit trail of repetition, and yet this rabbit trail is something just like Matt said about the songs that we sing, need to be repeated and repeated and repeated 
and repeat it for the rest of our lives. We are a forgetful people. We are a, just a short-sighted people. Jesus is on the throne. The right man is at the helm of the cosmos, and we, his people, are his. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, from your eternal and manifold wisdom, you have planned through Christ, by your Spirit, us, the church, your new covenant people, people from all over the world, from all peoples, from all languages, from all cultures, to be united together to love one another because of our being united and bound up together by the Spirit because of our common faith in Christ. We, his body, he, our head. God, we pray that this would be certainly true of us as we remember other believers around the world, believers who are doing your work of preaching the gospel in dark places, believers who are suffering because of their belief in Christ, in dark places. Help us to remember our brothers and sisters around the world. We pray that this would be true certainly among us as your people in this room, united more and more deeply to one another. Help it be so. We need your miraculous work of grace and of power in our lives, not just for salvation, but for sanctification, for life together in godliness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.